My name is Matt Furman. Uh, I'm with the law firm at Todd and Weld in Boston, where I'm a commercial litigator uh, with a focus on uh, real estate disputes uh, in the Superior Court and in the Land Court. Uh, I'm joined today by Emmanuel Ebot, who's uh, a talented transactional lawyer and an all-around good guy. Um, Emmanuel, why don't you say hi and tell yeah. folks Good. I was going to say good, good morning, but it looks like we're already afternoon. So good afternoon, everyone. Um, as Matt mentioned, uh, my name is Emmanuel Ebot. I'm an attorney at Styles Law. Um, going in, going on year 17 now. Um, and my practice focuses on real estate transactions, both residential and commercial. And as it relates to this topic, you know, Matt and I have had many discussions about this um, all of, for the Liz Pendants. Um, my involvement here today was really just to get a uh, conveyancer's perspective as to how we view the statute, um, you know, what it tells us as conveyances, whether we represent buyers, sellers, or lenders, um, and kind of answer some misconceptions that might be um, prevalent. So I'm, I'm I'm glad Matt asked me to join, and I think this is, it, you know, this, there's going to be, this is really going to be beneficial for everyone, so. I think you're underselling your involvement, Emmanuel. But I, <laughs> I'll say where it comes up in my practice is, uh, for example, uh, disputes over purchase and sale agreements. The deal falls apart and uh, buyer runs into court to try to prevent seller from selling to somebody else. Uh, if you have a dispute over a right of first refusal, whether the terms were complied with, you might have the holder run into court. Obviously, there's a lot of different situations where somebody might have a claim that's appropriate for list pendants, but I think those sort of contractual rights, be it an option of some kind or a failed purchase and sale agreement, is sort of the, the heart of where these issues come up, and that's what I see in my practice. Um, so what I'm going to do now is share my screen, and we're going to look at our uh, PowerPoint here hopefully correctly. And um, here we go. Emmanuel, how am I looking? Fabulous as ever. I'm ready to go. <laughs> okay. All right, welcome to uh, our presentation on the list pendant statute. Uh, this is put on by the Boston Bar Association, particularly its Business and Commercial Litigation Steering Committee. I'm a proud member of that committee. Uh, and uh, we hope you join uh, all of our monthly webinars here. So, again, Matt Furman, Emmanuel Ebot, um, you have our faces twice now. So, let's start with the real basics here. What is list pendants? Uh, it's Latin for pending suit or suit pending. I'm not sure which of those is exactly correct, but you get the idea. There's a suit underway. And uh, the premise of the list pendant statute is uh, to remedy the harshness of the common law, which was that a pending lawsuit was viewed as notice to the world of a claim as to title. So if you lived in Pittsfield and you had a uh, were seeking to buy a property in Boston, and there was a lawsuit pending in Suffolk County where somebody else was, claiming they were the owner of that property, you would be obligated to go search the court 
docket uh, under the common law uh, to to uh, to to know if somebody else was claiming title. Uh, and this, of course, was in the days that preceded PACER or mass courts. Uh, so this was a very harsh rule for buyers uh, who would be bound by the judgment. Uh, so what the statute is intended to do is provide notice of existing claims of title to real estate. Uh, and it, it's, it's recorded. It's just like any other encumbrance. And it comes up uh, if there's one in place in the context of due diligence, you might see it, Emmanuel. You've probably had situations where you've found a list pendants notice when you were looking at a property for for a buyer. Well, we we don't like to find them, but yes, those do come up. Um, Going back to kind of what you were saying about, you know, the common law requirement um, to to kind of do your due diligence um, from a real estate conveyancing perspective, when a when someone's purchasing real estate, the normal due diligence that we go through now requires a diligent search at the registry of deeds. Um, it requires a search of the probate court to look to see if the owner, if an owner in the chain of title either died or divorced, because just by their nature, those by definition, those affect real estate. There's also a search for the bankruptcy records. Again, if there's a bankruptcy proceeding by its nature, it would affect real estate owned by that person. But that's that's the extent of that. The, the the good thing about the statute is it kind of catches all catches everything else. So if there's a it if there is a suit now, the onus is on the person having that claim to file that at the registry. Um, so it again it it alleviates the need for me as a real estate conveyance to have to search every single court in that county to see if there's a claim. And even if there is a claim, I then now have to make that determination whether it affects real estate or not. So um, from a historical perspective, that's the benefit of that statute to a real estate conveyancer. Yeah, so I, this is sort of an extension of caveat emptor, right? So so generally buyer beware, but, but there are limits and uh, to preserve rights against a good faith buyer, you now need to have a memorandum of lists pendants on record. So the statute first enacted in 1877 uh, provides notice of existing claims and it's intended to protect good faith purchasers who aren't on notice. Uh, if you look at section A of the statute, you can still see the vestiges of the late 19th century language. Uh, it's sort of funny wording to to modern folks like us, but it talks about writs of entry and sort of bona fide purchasers, and and it, it's sort of from that era still to this day. So it's sort of a classic piece of fairness minded legislation um, that really took hold during that time period to to avoid some sort of unfairness in the harsh marketplace. Uh, originally, there was no judicial involvement. If anybody thought they had a claim to title, they could go record a list pendants on their own without calling a manual, uh, without calling me. They could just go do it. And uh, as you might expect, uh, the legislature reacted to that and thought that there was some overreach and some judicial oversight was appropriate. 
so judicial approval became a pre required prerequisite through the changes in the mid-1980s. It's really surprising it took more than a century for that to happen, but, but that's what did happen. So, uh, And then the current version of the statute really took its form in 2002 with some further amendments that we'll talk about. So the, the, it's just chapter 184, section 15. There's six uh, sections within it, A through F, and I've tried to just sort of identify what they cover here. Uh, section A is that classic 19th century language saying that the claims are not effective against third parties unless the list pendants is on record. Section B deals with how to obtain a memorandum of list pendants. This is getting the judicial approval that's been required since the 80s. Uh, section C is how to get rid of one, and we're going to spend some time on that letter. Uh, section D is that there's an immediate appeal right if you're aggrieved by the denial of an effort to remove a list pendants, and we're going to cover that as well. There's two additional sections. I don't want to weigh us down on those, but I've identified what they are. Um, you know, if you're dealing with a registered land issue or you're trying to stretch this to cover a zoning or land use issue, uh, those, those sections would be uh, important for you to consider. So uh, before we dig into the mechanics of obtaining one, getting rid of one, Emmanuel's going to talk a little bit about why they even matter. Yeah, and, and just as a reminder, folks, if you do have questions at any time, feel free to just put it in the Q&A um, by clicking the Q&A button at the bottom, and we'll try to kind of get to them as we're going. Um, yeah, so from a conveyancing perspective, um, it, it you know, obviously, it's, it's, all, it's we really want to know what's the impact on a transaction if there's a list pendants on record. And there's different impacts for sellers or owners or buyers and including buyers i'm including the, their stakeholders as well lenders title insurance companies you know anyone who's looking at this on title and, and trying to figure out what to do um so you know for the first one for a seller if, if you if you someone owns a piece of property and there's a lawsuit pending on that it's going to deter buyers you know so just the mere fact that you're involved in the lawsuit has the effect of deterring buyers so that's obviously the the big red flag um, the next one we see here is the rest, it restricts the ability to sell with marketable title. So for, for most real estate, residential real estate transactions, I'm going to focus on the residential just because those are, um, you know, just by sheer numbers, that's where most of the transactions lie. Um, a seller typically needs to convey marketable title, which one of the definitions is that there is no likelihood of a lawsuit afterwards attacking the title. So the mere fact that there is a lawsuit that is the subject matter is titles of the property obviously restricts that ability. Um, so the, if there is a list pendants on record um, when you're selling it, or even after the purchase sale agreement is signed, you can you can see how that might affect your ability to sell. Um, if you know if you had a line of credit, or if you are a a develop, real estate developer, for example, who has a construction loan on property. Uh, typically, anytime you get a draw on those construction funds, there is a, you know, the title company or the title attorney will do a, a search to look for any new lien or encumbrance that might be superior um, in nature to that draw that's contemplated. So 
that's another way that it, it can affect you, even if you own the property and you have no, you know, you, you have no plans of selling it. If you are receiving those draws, that's something that you would want to keep an eye on if you are a seller. Um, you know, if there's a commercial loan agreement or a commercial lease in place, um, tip, you know, oftentimes a list pendants is one of the events of default. So again, not if you're selling it, but you want to be making sure that uh, if there is something on there, it doesn't affect any other agreement you have in place with any other stakeholder. Um, and I'm going to talk about this one a little bit more uh, later on, but even, you know, the Liz pendants is, you know, I, I, I describe it as a red, as, as like a caution flag. It's, it, it's not an injunction from the court preventing the sale of the property. It's just a red flag to potential buyers saying, um, there's a, there's an issue here that you may want to take a look at, and then you make a decision whether you want to buy it or not. So even if there is a dissolution of the list pendants, whether by agreement with the other party, or there was some technical default in the pleadings by the claimant, you know, that underlying issue may not have been resolved. So that might still affect your ability to convey that with marketable title. So you know, so when again, it, when it's coming across your desk in your practice, uh, you know, while it is, while the goal is to get the list pendants dissolved, you also have the underlying claim that you're that a prospective buyer is going to be concerned about because now they're they're aware of it. So that's just something to keep in mind. Um, flipping over to the other side, Emmanuel, right? let me ask you yeah. one sure. question from the seller side. I I uh, obviously to and we'll get there too. To get a list pendants on property, you got to file a lawsuit, at least right. since the 1980s. Uh, but there can be disputes to title that haven't got that far down the road, right? Right. Somebody sent a letter. Um, what do you see in terms of contractual representations about uh, claims to title that uh, sellers are asked to make in purchase and sale agreements or something like that? Well, that's a good question. So, and I'm just going to go with a, again, a standard residential transaction. Um, what is typical, and I don't want to say it's across the board, but generally speaking, counsel for a buyer of property is going to want to know if there is any threatened litigation, contemplated litigation, you know, anything that might lead to a list pendants short of a complaint being filed. So that's, part of most residential purchase and sale agreements. Um, and those representations typically carry through all the way to closing. So even if you've you've signed the contract and there was no contemplated litigation, but then two weeks later, there, there is a dispute with a neighbor or you know, what have you, um, those representations are now, you, know, you, you now have to correct the record, so to speak. So um, you're right, that, that's, that's a typical representation in a contract that deals with contemplated litigation, um, you know, even short of a complaint actually being filed that, you know, or would, and, and again, if there is something like that, that's disclosed to the buyer, technically now the buyer's on notice of that as well, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking that you might see, um, you at least on the commercial deals, you tend to see some representations about title uh, for the buyer, and uh, this is sort of an additional piece. There's overlap there, but it seems like it, it could be an issue on both of those representations. 
That's correct. And similar, I mean, those the representations with title are are, are similar when in the commercial or residential. So it's the same thought process um, that's behind both of those. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. So on the buyer side, and again, I we list I listed as buyers, but again, think buyers, you know, lenders, title insurance companies. Again, when you see a list pendants on title, it's a, it's a flag. It's not necessarily saying that the transaction cannot proceed, because you know if if the if if a buyer does not have a lender and is not getting title insurance, a buyer can elect to buy that property with that list pendants still pending. They're just knowingly buying into a lawsuit. So it's it's not it doesn't necessarily derail a transaction, but it's a it's a cautionary flag to investigate more. Um, if a buyer does have additional stakeholders, like a lender or a title insurance company, um, it's, it might affect your ability to get financing um, because the lender is going to have the same concerns that a buyer would. Same thing with the title insurance company. Um, the other, and, and I just put made a note of this only because this, this, this has come up um, I don't want to say a lot, but it comes up a lot in foreclosure. So, um, you know, if if you are a buyer who buys at foreclosure, just going through the process really quickly, and you're the high bidder, there is a memo of sale, which is essentially the terms of the the auction sale that you sign with the foreclosing bank. You know, there's there's not a purchase and sale agreement. There's not an offer to purchase. The memo of sale details the terms of the deal. Um, and in most memo of sales, especially here in the Commonwealth, there's a line that gives the foreclosing bank the right to void that memo of sale if there is a list pendants that's put on record between the time of the auction and the actual closing, whether it's 30 days or 60 days later. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, though. Even if you're a foreclosure buyer who you've read the you've read the complaint that's filed. Um, you know, the, you know, prior owners claiming that they didn't get notice and you've seen the green cards that they actually did get notice. You're more than comfortable moving forward with purchasing a property with that list pendants. Your foreclosing bank might have another issue as well. So that's just something else to keep in mind for that small sect of buyers that, you know, the, 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 the fact that there's list pendants on there uh, might affect the actual foreclosing bank as well. Right. Uh, thank you. So let's talk about how a list pendants gets put on obtaining one. So it's really a two-step process under the current statute. And again, we've had judicial involvement in this since the 1980s. So step one is filing a verified complaint naming all owners of record and tenants uh, with a special certification. So a couple points to make here. Um, Naming the right defendants is a big deal. All owners of record, be careful with that, and tenants. Uh, there was an appeals court case uh, within the last few years that I think illustrates sort of the harshness of this requirement, uh, which matters both on the plaintiff and the defendant side, where uh, uh, I believe the appeals court affirmed uh, dissolving a list penance because um, not all the tenants had been named in a commercial property. And I know that the plaintiff, uh, it's written right in the decision, made a lot of efforts to try to figure out who all the tenants were and sort of got stonewalled. 
but still, that was not an excuse. You got to name everybody with an interest in the property or uh, you risk a dissolution. So um, whatever steps you got to take to make sure you have the right defendants, please do take them. The special certification language, uh, you sort of have your standard verification you have in a verified complaint, uh, but you'll want to track the statute to make sure you uh, put in this additional point, which is essentially that you're not omitting any material facts. You can imagine we're going to see on the other side of this, somebody claiming that you did omit material facts, and that can become an issue uh, from the defendant's perspective, or at least an effort to do so. But you just want to track the statutory language. I've seen the courts ask for a new verification if they weren't happy with what they saw. That's going to slow down your plaintiff client getting what they need to get the list pendants approved and recorded. So that's step one. Uh, step two is a motion, like just about everything else in court. Uh, and that's a motion uh, for approval of a memorandum of list pendants. And generally, you'll attach the form uh, of the list pendants you want and ask the judge to bless it. So the standard here is really the key point, And it's that if the subject matter of the action, I'm reading right out of Section B of the statute, constitutes a claim of a right to title to real property or the use and occupation thereof or the buildings thereon. So it's a somebody's claiming a right to title. That's the standard to get a list pendants approved. So Emmanuel talked a little bit about how it's not any real estate dispute that would cover this. It's a claim with a right to title. You recall at the beginning I talked about buyers in a dispute over a watch purchase and sale agreement, a right of first refusal holder. But Emmanuel, there are a lot of real estate disputes that wouldn't necessarily trigger the right to a list pendants. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think that's a, um, a misconception, I think, not only in the general public, but among some practitioners that just because the dispute involves the purchase and sale agreement, which covers real estate, that any dispute could give rise to a list pendants. For example, if the, if the, again, a purchase and sale of contract, a seller made a representation that turned out not to be true. And now the buyer is looking to terminate that contract. And there's a dispute over the deposit who's entitled to that deposit. So in that, in that specific example, there really isn't a dispute as to who as the title the buyer is not looking to you know, get specific performance. They're not looking to get that property anymore. So that dispute is really over that deposit, which is, again, a, a money damage. That is not likely to give rise to a list pendants in that particular statute, even though that dispute involved the sale of real estate. So you know, even though you know, related to title is a, it's a, it's a low bar, you still have to meet that bar. So um, again, I think in our, you know, with conveyances, sometimes that is not always understood and is or is misunderstood. I should say that uh, any any dispute is going to lead to a list pendants on the property. The difference between seeking specific performance and trying to get your deposit back. Right. Yes. Right. And that would be true in a commercial deal and a residential deal, I think. Um, if it, there is a uh, provision in the statute that lets you seek the uh, approval by an ex parte motion, 
uh, so you don't have to give notice to the other side. Uh, there's a couple additional findings that the court has to make. Well, actually one of two in order to meet the standard. Either the defendant uh, defendants are out of state or that providing them notice will um, uh, do something bad if they find out. So essentially, you have to show the court that they're likely to encumber or transfer the real estate if they have notice of it beforehand. Uh, so out of state or this sort of legitimate concerns of bad acts, those are the additional pieces for an ex parte, one or the other, disjunctive. Uh, and then when a judge is facing one of these motions, there really is limited discretion. Uh, Ferguson v. Maxim from a couple years ago, it's not the first case to say this, but they did sort of say it very directly. The granting of the motion hinges on the nature of the claim, not its merits. So uh, all the buyer has to do to stick with our simple example here, the right of first refusal holder, is make a claim to title. Uh, and the court is not on whether to uh, approve the memorandum of list pendant, look at how strong a claim it is or not. What is the nature of the claim? The limits, of course, are what Emmanuel talked about, but uh, it's the nature of the claim. Uh, the statute also provides the courts with some discretion to grant equitable relief on a temporary basis to preserve the status quo instead. I think every time I've uh, been on the defense side of one of these. I've tried to argue for this alternative. I've never had a judge really take it too seriously. Uh, they sort of are going to stay within the lanes of, of the list pendants question or not, but it is there. And I'm sure somebody out there has had more luck than I have. Um, and I think, you know, from the defense side, the reason you'd be interested in some alternative is that um, it just sort of messes up the title a little bit and it makes it harder to sell the property because it's out there uh, for the reasons Emmanuel talked about. So you might be better off agreeing to uh, some sort of status quo agreement or at least asking the court for it if you think it's going to impact uh, seller's ability to uh, sell the asset in the future. So, so this is the two-step process for, for obtaining a list pendants. Uh, and I think we're going to. So I think we have, we actually have a question. Oh, it, okay. Um, when might a buyer or under what circumstances might a buyer complete a, the purchase of a property despite the existence of a list pendants? Um, so again, in my it, it's 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 really depending on the circumstance. You know, the answer I would say is it depends on what the underlying claim is and how strong it is. Obviously, like Matt just said, if the you know the court doesn't really take any discretion as to whether the list pendants is filed or not, but a buyer or buyer counsel can. Um, you can look at the claim. Um, again, the one that comes to mind for a, a transaction I worked on was a it was a foreclosure auction. The high bidder um, wanted to close because they saw the complaint filed by the um, former owner alleging that, and really the only claim was that they didn't get notice. And that was their hook to get the list pendants. 
that buyer did their due diligence and you know reached out to the foreclosing bank to see hey did they get notice and was able to get you know the green cards the notices so in that scenario that buyer felt comfortable enough that that case was going wasn't that the former owner's case was not going to be successful based on the information that buyer had and the buyer wanted to proceed despite the existence of the list pendants on record so it's and again that was a very unique case where um, they were okay going without title insurance. There was no lender involved, but again, you can you can see how this is a kind of a case by case basis. Um, I, I, I've I've not been in a transaction before where a title insurance company has has agreed to insure over um, insure a property with a a list pendants on record. I, I mean, I think that might be a leap too far, but if 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 someone else but it doesn't mean that that's impossible right it, it really depends on the circumstances of that particular case so very good question from a very smart questioner um I, you know emmanuel you might see it says suit pending but the by the time you get around to looking at it the suit might be resolved right and it's not that people dissolve as part of the settlement, necessarily get it off record, right? The suit has just gone away, and it's still hanging there as a potential cloud on the title. That is right, and that's actually a good point. Just because you see a list pendants that's active doesn't mean that it's it's a it's a current you know or a pending suit right now. I, I will say, you know, when I'm reviewing title and I see a list pendants, again, we view this as just flags, cautionary flags go investigate further. So what I would do is I would then go to the, you know, pull up um, mass courts and, and find out where does that case stand right now? Is it active? Has it been dismissed? Is, it, is there a judgment? And based on that, it'll kind of dictate how we go forward. We'll, we'll, you know, I think we have a couple of slides showing us how to get rid of one, but yeah, just because there's a list pendants on record doesn't mean that it's actually a problem. Um, and just, I, I, you know, Matt and I were talking about this earlier, how I forgot to actually put a copy of what the net, what you'd be looking at um, on your title search when you find a list pendants. But you know, just just as a practical matter, the, this list pendants member of list pendants has to be recorded at the registry. Um, so it's literally just a finding from the court endorsed by the judge saying that there is a dispute that involves real estate. That's what gets filed at the court. Nothing. You know, it, it, nothing more than that. Um, I think the land court has some additional certifications for registered land property, but generally speaking, it's really just a short endorsement by the court, and that's what's filed. And again, that's really just to put buyers on notice. So once you've obtained, you know, once you know, if you've, if once Matt has gotten the motion approved by the court, you then have to get that that finding slash order endorsed by the judge, and that's what you take to the registry to record. Yeah, so so let's jump right into how you get rid of one. Um, so uh, there's sort of three ways to get rid of them. The first is by agreement. The second is a motion to dissolve. And the third, since 2002, is a special motion to dismiss the title-based claims. We're going to spend some time on all of these. Uh, on Manuel's going to talk a little bit about the first method, I'll say on a motion to dissolve, uh, if 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 you did a ex parte motion initially, the defendant's entitled to a really quick hearing within three days after they have notice. Um, 
certainly can go to the court and ask for it. And, you know, uh, not saying that you'll always get it within three days, but you're entitled to a very speedy hearing. And essentially, it's the same standard as you'd be facing uh, on the actual motion for approval in the first place. Is there a uh, claim of a right to title? Um, and you might run into issues with whether facts were omitted from the um, from the complaint or not, or may argue that there is no claim to title here, but that's sort of the standard. Um, and the special motion to dismiss, we're going to spend a bunch of time on uh, towards the end. And by a bunch, I mean a slide or two. But, um, you know, it's sort of the, the statute says it's heard a special motion to dismiss is heard with the motion to uh, dissolve unless it's heard with the initial motion for approval of the list pendants. So nine times out of 10, once lawyers get involved, you're going to get together and you're going to agree on a briefing schedule, particularly in Superior Court, where you can sort of set your Rule 9A briefing schedule, and you're going to have it all heard together. Uh, folks that want to get the list pendants in place can, can push to just have the approval put in place beforehand and then have the motion to dismiss decided afterwards. But more often than not, you get sort of a organized briefing packet for uh, the motion for approval and the special motion to dismiss to be heard together by agreement. It's always good to negotiate a uh, briefing schedule uh, and avoid you having to rush your special motion to dismiss on the defense side, but it doesn't always work that way. And while a special motion to dismiss is pending, which I believe would mean served as well, um, discovery state by statute. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is later on. Uh, but this is the pause button on the litigation, the special motion to dismiss piece. So before we get into all that fun stuff, uh, let's talk about getting rid of one by agreement. Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I would venture to guess most of the, you know, most of these types of disputes are resolved by agreement, um, which really just means that the defendant or landowner and whoever is making the claim have come to some resolution and um, either to dismiss the case or, you know, judgment in favor of one party. So there is some agreement in place um, that get, takes care of the underlying lawsuit. What now we need is to take care of the memo that's been filed at the Registry of Deeds. And yeah, in front of you, you can see the Reba Real Estate Bar Association Title Standard 29, that basically gives a guideline as to how to get these off of record. Um, they mirror the land court guidelines as well. So if you're um, familiar with those, it's it's really the same thing. As, as a practical matter, I like to stick with the, you know, just in general, I like to stick with the land court guidelines because you know you're never really going to be stuck with something on record um, if you stick with the land court guidelines. So that's just um, as a practical matter. So. I'm going to start with, you know, I'm just going to read it. The memo of list pendants may be dissolved by recording with the Registry of Deeds where the memo has recorded either a clerk certificate of court where the action was entered, um, stating that the action has gone to final judgment in favor of the defendant or that the action was dismissed. Um, the, again, with, with the certificate stating that it's gone to final judgment, obviously the any. Apical appeal period would have to have been passed without any appeal being filed. 
Um, so that certifies that, you know, even though there was a case, it has been dismissed and there's no appeal. Um, or judgment is entered in favor of the, the homeowner, again, with no appeal um, pending. So simply record, you get that certificate from the clerk's office and a tested copy. You take that to the registry, you record it, and that effectively dissolves that memorandum of independence. Um, in the alternative, you can file what they call a notice of voluntary dissolution. Again, this is the parties have reached some agreement and they are able to, you know, you know depending on what the agreement is, maybe the, there's some, maybe there's other claims of the case that are ongoing. So you can't really get a certificate of dismissal, but the parties agree that we're going to get this list pendants off. Um, so it's literally just a executed by either the, the plaintiff who filed the action or their successor in interest, or by an attorney for either party. So any attorney can certify that, yes, there has been an agreement by, you know, by the parties here, and we're certifying that list pendants is, is been dissolved. So the next slide actually shows you just a sample of that type of dissolution. Uh, and yeah, so this is, as you can see, this is just a sample of what you would be filing at the Registry of Deeds to dissolve it by agreement by the parties. In this case, we have it set up signed by the plaintiff. As again, as a practice matter, you know, I know either attorney can sign it. When I'm, you know, if if I'm the, you know, the title attorney and I'm looking at this, I'm going to want some confirmation from the plaintiff or plaintiff's counsel that it has been resolved. Um, and I and I think I mentioned before. The mere fact that the list pendants has been dissolved, it's not necessarily the end all be all, because you also want to look to see if the underlying complaint, you know, what what agreement did they reach? And does that agreement also affect a potential buyer or a potential lender going forward? So just because you've been sent this dissolution to record, it's not necessarily a you know, a blank slate that allows you to move forward with your transaction. You still want to see the underlying agreement between the parties and how that affects title. On the litigation side, I would think that um, if you're representing a defendant a uh, who's had a list pendants placed on their property, say you're representing the seller, you probably want to work in as a provision of the settlement agreement that you're going to get one of these filed um, just the way you might lay out a stipulation of dismissal. It's probably a helpful additional piece just to make sure everything's getting signed at the right time and you can, at the same time you're recording your uh, stipulation of dismissal, you can go get your uh, voluntary dissolution notice recorded at the registry. That, that That's right. And as we mentioned before, because these stay on title, so you could have resolved your dispute and you think everything is great and then three years from now you want to sell your property and then this comes up for something that has already been resolved. So I think it's a good practice uh, tip to include this in any, you know, settlement negotiations or resolution on any case that this be part of what has to be delivered to the to the homeowners council. So let's talk a little about the special motion to dismiss provision under Section C. This is really uh, the meat of the statute since. Uh, since 2002 and really the meat of, of uh, where this comes up in my practice as a litigator. So uh, 
I know Judge Agnes, when he was on the Superior Court, described the special motion to dismiss as the functional equivalent of summary judgment. But we're talking about at the outset of the case, because, again, this usually comes up in response to the motion for approval of list pendants. You then get a special uh, motion to dismiss in response. So uh, we are not limited to the pleadings here. This is not a 12B6 analysis. This is affidavits, documents, um, the evidence coming in right away at the outset of the case to determine whether the plaintiff's claim of a right to title is frivolous by a preponderance of the evidence. You hear the word frivolous, which is right in the statute. You might be thinking about something along the lines of 231.6F or Rule 11. We're not in that world. Frivolous is defined in the list pendant statute of one of three things. Devoid of any reasonable factual support. Two, devoid of an arguable basis in law, which is which is sort of a, a legally failed complaint or subject to dismissal based on a valid legal defense. Uh, so, so this is the standard and this is what it means. If you're bringing a special motion to dismiss, you got to hit on one of these three for it to be allowed. Uh, again, the courts can consider actual evidence in the form of affidavits, uh, not be limited in the way you would be at a 12B6. Uh, the other point here is that um, this, this really is the cousin of the anti-slap statute, and it was sort of described as such, not those exact words in this SJC case from a couple of years ago. Uh, but the underlying policies here are the same, which is that both statutes, and this is right out of uh, this DeChico case, both statutes are designed to weed out groundless litigation early on and to ensure that successful that the successful defendant is made whole by being reimbursed for the legal fees it has incurred in its defense of the summarily dismissed case. The special motion to dismiss provides for fee and cost shifting uh, if you're successful, which of course is a potent weapon uh, here. Uh, so so uh, if you have a basis to claim that that uh, the the claim of title is is frivolous as defined by the statute. Uh, you have a major weapon here uh, to try to get the case dismissed and recover your fees in doing so. So obviously, defense counsel is uh, is is where appropriate going to bring such a motion. You know, I I don't want to spend too much time here on the anti-slap statute, but. Uh, I know there have been a lot of decisions over the last decade or so sort of tweaking with the standard here um, and burden shifting and things like that. Uh, that's not, despite them being cousins, they're they're not more closely related than that. Uh, frivolous is defined right in the list pen and statute uh, that anti-slapped analysis does, does not seem to apply here. And I I believe the uh, SJC has sought amicus uh, on whether they should stick with that standard. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens uh, to Liz Pendence's cousin, at the next family reunion, if it if it still looks the same. Uh, so what I've tried to do, what Emmanuel and I have tried to do is uh, come up with five rules that sort of help you understand uh, 
how a special motion to dismiss is going to be decided on. And I'm hoping, we're hoping that this is useful both for when you're just thinking about whether to uh, bring a special motion to dismiss or oppose one, um, how you think it might come out, handicapping the odds, considering a an immediate appeal, which is your right if it's denied. So if the complaint is legally insufficient, meaning it sort of fails as a matter of law, your motion should be allowed. The claim should be dismissed. If the plaintiff omitted a material fact, remember the special verification language we're talking about, that can be grounds for the motion to be allowed. Uh, and again, we're talking about fee shifting when we're talking about a special motion to dismiss allowed. If the undisputed facts show the claim fails, again, this is the functional equivalent to summary judgment. You don't have to do a, a uh, list of undisputed facts, but if if the record shows the facts are undisputed and the claim fails, the motion should be allowed and the defendant should get his, her, its fees. Now, if there's a disputed question of material fact, again, you're at the outset of the case, the motion should be denied. Uh, for the same reason as number five, discovery might be necessary. So uh, looking at these five rules and uh, fitting your argument for dismissal or in opposition to dismissal into this rubric might be helpful to you the next time you're uh, in, in pretty extensive motion practice at the outset of the case um, under the Liz Pendant statute. Uh, and um, want to talk a little bit about the right to an inter uh, interlocutory appeal under uh, Section D of the statute. Uh, it's an immediate appeal right, just like the anti-slap statute, and just like the cousin anti-slap statute, discovery is not stayed for the appeal. It's just stayed while the actual motion is pending. Um, you certainly can go ask an appellate court or uh, the trial level court that you're in to stay discovery uh, while the appeal's decided. My personal experience, good luck to you, but it can be worth trying. Uh, especially in light of that DiCicco case that I mentioned before that sort of analogized the two statutes uh, where the SJC held that um, if a party successfully gets their, um, their special motion to dismiss allowed uh, on, on, on appeal, uh, they can recover not just their fees in bringing the motion in the trial court, but in pursuing the appeal as well. So uh, that further incentivizes uh, or creates a heavier weapon uh, because the fee number is going up, uh, assuming you have you have a basis to appeal it. Um, and essentially, I you know I would think that might encourage folks to try to stay discovery while the appeal's pending because then they're in a position to say any additional cost I've incurred in the trial level, uh, if you're ultimately successful on your appeal. Uh, are fees I was forced to incur because of this this groundless claim. So, so I think you might see that there too. Uh, you have thirty days to file your appeal. It's it's governed by two thirty one one eighteen, both paragraphs, the first and the second paragraphs. Uh, uh, anybody that's thinking about filing an appeal, 
on the first day after they get the decision, I would encourage them to go read this DeLucha v. Corey case from 2018. This is a true trap for the unwary. You need to look at what it is you are appealing from. So if you had a special motion to dismiss an entire lawsuit that was uh, denied, you think incorrectly and you're going to appeal it. You are not going to the single justice on uh, on day 29 because the single justice doesn't have statutory authority to grant you what you're asking for, dismissal of the full lawsuit. You need to file a notice of appeal instead. And this case is an example uh, of where somebody went to the single justice when they should have just filed a notice of appeal and there was no authority to further extend the 30-day window and they lost their right to an appeal. Uh, so this is a trap for the unwary. You want to be mindful of this opinion, which I think was written by Chief Judge Green of the Appeals Court, a very thoughtful guy on real estate issues as well. Uh, please, if you don't remember anything else today, read that decision uh, before your 30 days is up. Uh, and the standard of review on an appeal, which I think is sort of interesting, it was discussed in this Ferrello v. Zao case uh, from last year. Um, the standard of review is an abuse of discretion or an error of law with conclusions of law subject to broad review that will be reversed if incorrect. And on the factual side, drawing its own conclusions from the record when the order is based solely on documentary evidence. Well, um, that's what you're dealing with here in the functional equivalent of summary judgment at the outset of the case. So, uh, so you get a chance for a fresh set of eyes on it, but given the, the trial court's closeness to it, them having uh, had a hearing on the merits here, uh, your pro if your argument is purely legal, that, that strikes me as a better place to be than, than one where you're asking the appellate court to draw its own inferences from the same factual record. So that is uh, sort of what we wanted to cover today. Do we have any other questions? I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I don't think we have any. Maybe we'll give it a couple minutes, a couple seconds. But if folks do have questions, here is some contact information for both Emmanuel and I. Uh, we're, we're, we're happy to talk to you off record if, if that's helpful. That's right. And, uh, and I believe they're, they're going to make the uh, slides available as well, um, if you'd like that. But like Matt said, we're, we're open to any further questions, concerns. You can reach, us, reach out to us individually. Well, I think we're safely in the not the longest one ever and not the shortest one ever window. So I think we we achieved our goal here. Yeah, thank you both for the presentation. That was really informative. And if there are no further questions, I think we'll wrap it up. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.